Well, so excited, as I said earlier, to be able to, um, for us to gather again. It's been a while, and we've got a new semester. We've got 11 weeks in this semester coming up here that we're going to be um, going through. We, we have two different series. Um, we're we're going to be spending three weeks. We'll have four sessions. I'll explain how that is. Three weeks, four sessions on uh, reflections on C.S. Lewis 60 years later. That, that we'll jump into tonight. And then the, the last eight weeks of this semester, we're actually going to be going through the book of Revelation. And I've asked Pastor John Mel uh, our, from our Windsor campus to help with that. And he's going to be doing the, uh, probably the large share of those because he's, he's gone through a teaching series on it out at Windsor a couple times, and it's excellent. It's very, very good. So that's kind of what, what lays ahead of us. Um, you picked up your bulletin, no doubt, on the way in. Please take a look at what's on the back. Fall starting, new opportunities, new things, uh, ways for you to get plugged in, engaged relationally, spiritually growing. Um, I want to mention one thing that I didn't get on the back. I, it was t- I, I was too late in putting it on there. I missed it. This coming up Sunday morning at 11.30 during the last uh, service on Sunday, we have a workshop. And this workshop will actually kind of be geared toward this weekend, what's coming up here. It's, it's a workshop that Mackenzie Matthews is going to be doing that's around how, do, what does it look like to say, uh, if, if someone asked me like, so what does it mean that you're a Christian? Why are you a Christian? What has God done in your life? Maybe some version of that question that you could be able to frame it in a way that makes sense, that comes across to them. And so Mackenzie Matthews is, is going to be talking about what does it mean to develop an eight-minute testimony? And it's a fantastic opportunity for you to do that. And again, it's going to kind of coincide with our weekend that I'll say a word about here as well. The series that we're jumping into tonight, Reflections on C.S. Lewis 60 Years Later, why are we doing that? Well, two reasons primarily. One is in the calendar where we are, this fall, coming up in November, November 22nd of this fall, is the 60th anniversary of Lewis's passing. And so that's sort of, hey, I'm always looking for an opportunity to talk about C.S. Lewis because he's so very helpful in our discipleship. I feel like, as we follow Jesus. And then secondly, um, is because we're going to be having a special guest. Uh, Next week, and next week's going to be different because we're going to have two different lectures given, and even our format will be a little bit different. Um, This gentleman right here, if you can can see that picture there, uh, Dr. Jerry Root. Dr. Jerry Root is one of my heroes of the faith. Okay, Jerry Root is a guy who um, I have learned so much from him in his books, in his lectures, that um, he's just an enormous uh, intellectual mind. Uh, Jerry has been a professor at Wheaton College. He's just retired. He's now um, a visiting professor at Biola as well as um, Wheaton, and um, just a brilliant guy. He is one of the leading C.S. Lewis scholars in the world in the absolute world. And um, through a friend of mine, he's like, oh, I know Jerry, he did my premarital counseling. I was like, I wanna know him, I wanna know him, please. And so he kind of made this connection. So we're, we're gonna be actually bringing him out here. Is that able to get larger on the screen, do we know? Um, I don't know if that's with my computer or with the connection there, if I need to do this differently. Uh, let me know how. But um, so anyway, Jerry Rue will be here. Here's the difference. Next week, we're having church Wednesday night and Thursday night, 
okay? So if you come Wednesday night, Dr. Jerry Root is, is going to be um, talking about this topic, C.S. Lewis's big ideas. And uh, Jerry essentially says Lewis has three primary ideas that all of his other ideas revolve around. So that's Wednesday night, 645. And then Thursday night, 645, he's going to be talking about C.S. Lewis and his intellectual hurdles to faith, which is really, really interesting, really helpful. Um, Here's the difference, though. We're not going to be having any music or worship next week. We're not going to be taking communion. So we're starting like right at 645. So that means get here. On time at 6.45. Good, good. Okay. Get here at 6.45 because I'm going to try to really quickly turn it over to uh, Dr. Root. I really want him to have as much time as possible. And then uh, probably Pastor Donnie and I will have roaming microphones and we want to take like the last 10 minutes and like you be able to ask questions. Um, Root's one of these guys who, there's no one I know who knows more about Lewis. Like I have all of these questions. I studied Lewis a lot, but I have tons of questions I've never had answered. And so I remember I had a conversation on the phone. I was like, okay, what about this? And he's like, oh yeah, it's this, that. I was like, oh, I've been looking for this for years. So he's just, he's brilliant. I love Jerry. He's down to earth. He's just this kind, kind of uh, self-effacing, doesn't take himself too seriously kind of guy, but he's really, really sharp. So I hope you'll be there for both nights. And then um, also, if you're here this coming weekend, Jerry's going to be teaching in our main service. Um, He's going to be speaking about personal evangelism. What does it look like to have a life in which you're, you're actively bringing people to know Jesus, but not in a way where you're weird? <laughs> you know what I mean by that? And, and, and Jerry's just wonderful. Jerry's the, I don't know if he's the director of the Billy Graham Institute at Wheaton. So it just, he's a great, great guy. So hopefully you'll be here on the weekend as well. That's why I said this workshop that Mackenzie Matthews is doing really goes well with that. We're wanting you to not just be inspired, but go, okay, how do I do that? What does that look like to have a testimony that I can communicate well? So that's kind of what's, what's going on here. Um, it's timely, as I mentioned, 60 years ago. And I mentioned the date, November 22nd, 1963. How many of you, when I say that date, you know that date? A number of you. Do you remember where you were November 22nd, 1963, if you were alive? You probably do, because that's when JFK was assassinated the exact same day. It's interesting that C.S. Lewis, John F. Kennedy, and actually another guy by the name of Aldous Huxley, a philosopher, kind of an Eastern pantheist guy, all three of them died within hours of one another on November 22nd, 1963. In fact, if you're, if you're interested in this, it's a fascinating book. It's real small. The only thing better than a small book is a cheap book, and it's both. It's, it's, it's tiny. It's a, it's a book uh, called Between Heaven and Hell. I can't remember the subtitle. It's something like a dialogue between... Uh, John F. Kennedy, C.S. Lewis, and Aldous Huxley. And it's a fictional conversation of what, what might they have talked about, because all three of them kind of represent different worldviews. JFK, though, he was a Catholic, largely embraced a secular, materialistic worldview. Aldous Huxley was a pantheist, all is God, kind of an Eastern worldview. And then C.S. Lewis, of course, embraced a traditional theistic Christian worldview. And so Peter Kreeft, the theologian who wrote this book writes this fictional dialogue. I, what, what would happen if they talked about the big issues of life, meaning, morality, 
sexuality, ethics, is there a God, all of these big questions. And it's a fascinating read, and it's a wonderful introduction to the thoughts of Lewis, even though it's not him, Peter Crave so well reflects Lewis's thoughts. So anyway, I would encourage you to pick that little book up if you can. And, and for me, Lewis has been personally influential. Outside of my mother and my father, I don't think there's been another human being which has shaped how I think and how I process and engage and dialogue and reason on these big issues of life and faith more than C.S. Lewis has. So he's someone who, for me, has just been instrumental. He's someone who I keep coming back to and rereading and picking up on little things. Um, and whether you're exploring Jesus for the first time, Lewis is for you, or if you've been a Christian your whole life and you'd say there's nothing more I can learn, C.S. Lewis is for you. He will challenge you on either side of that spectrum that you're on. So here's what we're gonna do over the next three weeks. Tonight, I want us to sort of just get an introduction. If you know nothing about Lewis, if you know a little bit, maybe you'll learn some other things, but who is he? Why is he so significant? What are his contributions? What, what's the significance of him? How is it that his books are still in print when his critics of the day, we don't even know their names, but why, is he, why does he have this enduring legacy in his thoughts and who he was? Um, next week, as I mentioned, Jerry Root, two different times, Wednesday night and Thursday night, we'll talk about what are his biggest ideas like the core, and then what were the intellectual hurdles to his faith, and then the, the third week, I'm going to talk a little bit about, I'm going to consider something that Lewis thought was really significant, and it was called smuggled theology. He had this idea, and he said, um, people do this all the time. Hollywood does this. They tell you a story, but they smuggle in the story something you don't even know is there. It's theology. It's philosophy. Answering the big questions, what's the meaning of life? What's our origin? What does morality look like? What's our destiny? That's theology. And they smuggle in theology through a story. And what's so interesting about a story is you step into a story and you start living it before you're aware of what's inside there, right? That's the good and the bad of stories. And so Lewis understood that well. And so he wrote stories and he smuggled in Christian theology in a day and age which was completely secularistic and materialistic and would reject all those ideas outright. But he asked them to step into a world which they said, oh, this is interesting. And they started evaluating the world from within. And all of a sudden they were exposed to theology that they would have spit out had it come to them directly. So we'll look at some of the Narnia examples and of course the, maybe the most enduring character of all of Lewis's is Oslin, <laughs> the lion. As we mentioned earlier, C.S. Lewis died in the city of Oxford, England. That's uh, northwest of London, November 22nd, 1963, just shy of his 65th birthday, just a week shy. Um, Armand Nicolai, who wrote the book, The Question of God, I think paints it well when he, he says this. Four days later, after his death, friends and family gathered at Holy Trinity Church at Headington Quarry to mourn the death of C.S. Lewis. The service began with a quote from John 11:25, I'm the resurrection and the life, saith the Lord. After the service, the group walked slowly into the cold, clear air. 
and watched silently as the coffin was carried from the church to the courtyard for burial. Uh, the New York Times, um, on just a couple days later, three days later, on the 25th, amid all of these, like tons of articles about JFK, as you can imagine, that took the front page, that took the headlines, tucked a few pages back under the fold, there was um, also a note that, that uh, said, C.S. Lewis, dead, author, critic, 64. And, and under his photo, under the fold, there were several articles, columns. The Times uh, surveyed Lewis's prolific life. They mentioned his reputation. He's this brilliant uh, scholar, reviewed some of his scholarly uh, and popular works that had already sold millions of copies by this point. And noted that his, his success as a writer occurred after he changed worldviews from an atheistic, materialistic worldview to what the Times uh, then called the spiritual worldview. Because this was very passe, this was very outdated, so to speak. Um, Lewis, um, the celebrated uh, tutor of Oxford, later professor at Cambridge, uh, I would submit to you and suggest that he is the most influential Christian thinker of the 20th century, of the last century. Arguably, he's the most influential and, and will be long-term, I think, the most influential Christian thinker of the 20th century. It's interesting that during World War II, when um, Germany's attacking Britain, the morale of the people, is it's down, it's at the very bottom. They don't know if they're gonna wake up tomorrow with the blitzkriegs and the bombings and all this sort of thing. And so the government of Britain actually approached uh, C.S. Lewis and asked him to do a series of broadcasts on the BBC. And they said, we want you to talk about something that would moor us, that would give us hope, that in, in spite of what looks like certain death for all of us in the darkest days of the war. And so during the war, Lewis did these broadcasts, so much so that his voice was the most, it, it was the second most recognizable voice on the BBC in all of Britain, right next to Winston Churchill the most recognizable. There are stories that, that barkeeps, when he would come on, would say, quiet, quiet, this bloke's really smart. Listen to this guy. He's got some good things to say. It was played in pubs. It was played all, it was the second most recognizable voice in Britain during World War II. And it was those BBC talks, those ones that he gave on the BBC air, that later he went back and he, he edited, did a few things, put them all together. And the book is called Mere Christianity. That's what the book Mere Christianity is, is these addresses giving, I'm gonna give you some mooring in the face of, is there hope? That's why I think it's always relevant. It's always relevant, even in our own day and age. A few years later, Time Magazine described C.S. Lewis as the most intellectual, I'm sorry, influential spokesman, as I said, of the spiritual worldview. And again, you have to realize, this is post-Enlightenment Europe. This is post-Darwin Europe. This is post-Freud Europe. Secularism looks as though it has won the day. Most of the churches, the mainline Protestant churches, they have bought into what's called theological liberalism, which is to say they've given up on, no, of course there weren't real miracles. That's just a, a sort of pre-enlightened people's explanation of things. Of course there was no resurrection. That's just what a pre-enlightened person thought. 
selling out all these things, saying we have to have a, a enlightenment, um, post-enlightenment, intellectually respectable Bible and story. And so we have to jettison all of these things. And Lewis is the one who, in the face of that, um, holds to the traditional, historical, biblical view of life and God and meaning and so forth. So again, it's not far-fetched to say he's the most influential theological writer, and yet he wasn't a theologian. Lewis had no training in theology, zero, which is so interesting. So here's the question, why didn't the theologians of, the, of this day, why weren't they doing this? Isn't that an interesting thought? Lewis kind of viewed it as, oh, I guess I have to. And he said many times, I'm not gonna guess about that, I'm not a trained theologian. He was trained in philosophy, he was trained in literature, and he was a passionate follower of Jesus. He didn't have any theological training, and yet he's the most influential theological person of the last hundred years. Isn't that interesting? It's kind of one of those things where it's, uh, you know, maybe God would ask you to stand up in a setting, in a scenario, ask you to do something, and your response could easily be, well, I don't, I'm not trained for that. God goes, that's okay. I got it. <laughs> Just do what I have equipped you for. It, it's sort of the whole Moses thing. Moses says, well, I can't do that. And he goes, well, what's in your hand? What's well, a rod? It's a step. What's in your hand? Be faithful to that. And that's what I think Lewis did. It was a what's in your hand, and he said a pen. It was good. Let's start with that. So he's not a theologian. <clears throat> Another thing is Lewis wrote to the layperson. Most theologians of his day, they're writing. They're not just watching TV. <laughs> they're writing to other academics. They're writing to other theologians. And that was considered respectable. Use jargon that the average person can't understand, then you sound real smart. Right? Lewis said, I'm going to write to the average person sitting in the pew. I'm going to write to the lay person. And I'm going to use any means possible. I'm going to use children's literature. Now, in this day and age, children's literature, signed, you know, that was not respectable in the academic world. But Lewis said, will it work? Then I'll use it. And it's because of that, for instance, that Lewis, when he was at Oxford, he was never given full professorship. He was always kept a tutor. Of course, he's the only person we almost remember from Oxford of the last century, but he wasn't given full professorship because he was willing to use any means possible to reach all people. Sounds a little bit like Paul, right? I'll use any means to reach as many people as I can, even if they're not academically respectable means. This is what he did. In fact, just a few years ago, Oxford actually uh, offered a, a formal apology Sorry, yeah, we did that for political reasons. Our bad. <laughs> so it's, <clears throat> those are the reasons for it. And so again, he didn't just write in one genre. Most authors write in one genre. Go pick up a book, your favorite author. They probably write one genre. He didn't. His writings include apologetics. That's defending the Christian faith, giving philosophical arguments for it. He also wrote in theology and philosophy. He wrote in the genres of science fiction, fantasy, children's literature, he wrote poetry, he wrote literary theory, he wrote aesthetic history, Christian allegory, spiritual autobiography, fictional letters, 
He wrote devotional meditations and on and on. And I will even talk about the personal letters that he responded to, thousands of them by hand, not his typewriter, to people and the significance of that. Lewis wrote widely and he read widely as well. There are 73 titles that bear Lewis's name. And depending on how you count the genres, there's about 11 different literary genres that he wrote in. Let me, let me tell you about one book in particular. And I tell you about this one, not because I think you should read it. I've never read this one. I probably never will. But it lets you know this guy's intelligence and this guy's ability to, to read broadly. He wrote one book called English Literature in the 16th Century, Excluding Drama. Okay? It's part of a series called um, Oxford History of the English Language is the series. And the one he did was English Literature in the 16th Century, Excluding Drama. Now, I mention this to you for this reason. Now, think about this. To write this book, it took him 16 years from when he signed the contract to when it was finished. Here's what he did in order to write this book. He read every single book that was published in English during the 16th century, the 1500s. Every single book. More than that, he read every book that was translated into English in the 16th century. He also read the originals in the other languages, Old French, Italian, Latin, and the translation to make sure it was a fair and good translation. He called it his, his O-Hell book, O-H-E-L, Oxford, what is it? Oxford History of the English Language, O-H-E-L. He said, because that's what it was like doing this thing. It took him 16 years, his O-Hell book, to read every single thing written in the 16th. So can you imagine that? I can't even imagine that. Interesting, what happened in the 1500s that's significant for us? Are you a Protestant? Reformation happened. That means all of the writings that took place from the Protestants and the Catholic, he read it all. Isn't that interesting? He stands at a very interesting place to assess a lot of that. All of the dialogue, the debate, he read all, all of it, <laughs> which is amazing. It's interesting, when he was asked about, which I think might have some uh, significance into which I'll, we'll talk about in many here as far as how, how broadly he's embraced, whether it be Catholic or Protestant or whatever it might be. Um, but his, his essential conclusion was that um, both sides misunderstood each other. Isn't that interesting? He said that the Roman Catholics said the Protestants uh, were, were antinomian, which means like anti-law. They reject any sort of obedience stuff. And the Protestants said the Roman Catholics were Pelagian, which is sort of a, I won't go into that, but he goes, they both misunderstood each other. He said, no, you'll find Pelagians within some Roman Catholic, but that's the worst of them. And you'll find some antinomians within the Protestants, but that's the worst of them. And you never judge movement by its worst people or no one would be able to stand. <laughs> Interesting observation by Lewis. So much more could be told about Lewis, and we'll, we'll get to just a little bit of it in the coming weeks, but hopefully this will whet your appetite to say, I gotta come back to that guy. There's, I, I need to be a student of his in some way. Um, but let me just say one thing about why Lewis is loved by so many Christian traditions. 
And it's because he focused on, remember the name of that first book that was the compilation of all the BBC? He focused on mere Christianity. What did he mean by that? Well, he took the orthodox biblical view of man, of God, of the universe, without ever becoming judgmental, puritanical. And he challenged his readers and his listeners, rethink the claims of Jesus. Rethink the significance of the church. Rethink the Bible. But he did it in a, in a nonpartisan a non-denominational fashion that spoke with equal power to the Roman Catholics and the Protestants. Um, it spoke equally to if you were a high, high church Lutheran or a low church Baptist, if, if you were like a rational intellectual Calvinist or an emotional Pentecostal, he spoke to all of them. He spoke to everybody. He has this interesting, rare, universal appeal regardless of where a person stood. So his concern was with mere Christianity. And you say, what is that? Well, those are the central doctrines, you might say, of the Apostles' Creed, the things that all Christians have believed at all times and things that we hold in common. So for instance, in this day of intellectual rationalism, he asserted the, the metaphysical truth of, say, the Trinity or the incarnation. He asserted the historical truth of like the virgin birth, of miracles, of Jesus' resurrection. He, he asserted the theological truth of the atonement of Jesus, that he paid for our sins on the cross. And, and you might even say he asserted the geographical truth of heaven and hell. By geographical, I mean they're real. Not that they necessarily have coordinates, <laughs> but these are real realities in his day, an age that was unheard of. But he left open a lot of peripheral issues. Baptism, the Lord's Supper, purgatory, eschatology, that is end, end of the world prophecy sort of things. Uh, it, the exact nature of the atonement, is it this version or that version. He left those open and he said, that's for theologians to talk about. I'm not a theologian. <laughs> I'm concerned about mere Christianity. That's what I feel God has called me to. And so that's what I will give my time in defending. So let me say a couple things about his early life, about growing up this guy, C.S. Lewis. Um, he grew up in Belfast, Ireland. He always considered himself more Irish than English even though he's, he's, he's got an English accent. And um, his boyhood home, I'll show you a picture of it here up on the, up on the screen. This is his boyhood home. Uh, he, he nicknamed it Little Lee. You'll find C.S. Lewis had a nickname for literally everybody and everything. Let me, let me read this passage to you. He writes, in surprised by joy about this home as a little boy, which began to shape and form who he was. He said, I am the product of long corridors empty sunlit rooms, upstairs, upstairs indoor silences, attics explored in solitude, distant noises of gurgling cisterns and pipes, and the noises of wind under the tiles, also of endless books. His home, this home, overlooked the, the Belfast lock and shipyards where the Titanic 
was built. If you stand in his boyhood room and look out the window, you can actually, he actually watched the Titanic begin to be built. He writes this in Surprised by Joy. This was in the far off days when Britain was the world's carrier and lock was full of shipping. A delight to both us boys, but most to my brother. And he says, even today, the sound of steamers, horns, at night still conjures up my whole boyhood. Isn't that interesting? His name, of course, was C.S. Lewis, which stands for Clive Staples Lewis. He hated his name since day one. The story goes that when he was about three or four years old, he all of a sudden announced, I'm Jack. Call me Jack, not Clive. So from that day on, he was no longer Clive Lewis or Clive Staples Lewis, he was Jack Lewis. And that's how all of his friends knew him. They called him Jack rather than Clive. And while he grew up in, in somewhat of a religious, religious home in Ireland, his mother early on, he was about eight or nine years old, his mother got cancer and, 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 and he prayed fervently that she would be healed. And he was told by some religious leaders, if you pray hard enough, God will heal your mother. So he prayed hard and he thought, I'm praying hard, I'm praying hard. And he did about everything he could imagine. And his mother died when he was a nine-year-old little boy. And this impacted him the rest of his life. The last thing that his mother gave him on her deathbed gave him and his brother Warney a Bible of their own. She inscribed on the inside of it from your mother. And he held that to stay. But his father, after his mother's death, death grew very distant cold, shut in, kind of in a cloister in his heart. He, be, he didn't give these little children what they needed at the loss of their mother. In fact, he did about the worst thing you could imagine. He, he shipped them off to boarding school because he didn't know how to deal with them. He didn't know how to be a father. He himself didn't know how to mourn, so he sent his little nine-year-old boy and his brother off to a boarding school. They hated the boarding schools, in one of them, there was an abusive headmaster, and stories are told about what he, he did to the children. It's kind of horrific. In fact, a few years later, the headmaster was declared uh, clinically insane and institutionalized. But this abusive and brutality led to the older students actually preying on the weaker ones, and that included young Jack Lewis. The worst of these was um, Malvern College. It's, it's, it's like a high school, but where he endured what's called the fagging system. This is not a pejorative term here to, uh, to refer to anyone, but this fagging system was something that took place in boarding schools where older boys would make younger boys be their slaves, essentially, and just treat them awfully. It's an, uh, people have suggested it's, it's because of this that later in life, after becoming a Christian, Lewis actually developed a deep sensitivity to those he said on those are on the outside and he hated those who were in the inner ring not hated them but he hated the concept because the inner ring are the ones who have all the power and they abuse the people on the outside and lewis hated that because he he went through it so he always had a real sensitivity to those who were outsiders at about 15 years old after writing his father for six years Please, can I have some kind of other school? Please, can I have a tutor? Can I have something else? At 15 years old, his father finally relents. He lets him leave the school, and he's taught by a private tutor named Kirkpatrick. Kirkpatrick had been his dad's tutor 
years before. Now, Lewis was a professed atheist. This happened in his early teen years. After his mother dying and the things he went through, he wanted nothing to do with God. He didn't think there was a God. And as he said later, when I look back, I realized I, I didn't think there was a God, but I also hated God for not existing. <laughs> kind of an incongruity within his own mind. But this tutor, Kirkpatrick, was a strong atheist. And of course, Lewis has nicknames for everyone. He called him the old knock. So anytime he refers to Kirkpatrick in his writings, he's always the old knock. And he loved the old knock. He loved Kirkpatrick. He, Kirkpatrick was obsessively rational thinker. And he taught Lewis how to think and use reason clearly. He never let him get away with any easy answers. And Lewis's mind was honed in that setting, deeply honed. And of course, ironically, when Lewis became a Christian, he used those same sharp, rational thinking skills to then defend Christian truth. But Kirkpatrick's teaching and guidance helped Lewis get accepted into Oxford. So he went there for a short period of time. He then enlisted in World War I, and after an injury after not too long, he came back and the equivalent of, if you're not good at math, you'll appreciate Lewis for this. The equivalent of the SAT in England, he couldn't pass because he couldn't do math. He was horrible at math. But because there was a, if you had served in World War I, you got a buy. He got in. So he got into Oxford by the skin of his teeth. Otherwise, none of us might even know about him. I wonder if God was in charge of that. And as a student at Oxford, he excelled not in mathematics, but in the areas that he was gifted in. By God, he won the, the triple first, the highest honors of three areas of study, literature and philosophy, and, and, and um, few had ever achieved anything like this. And after graduating, he was accepted to stay on as the member of the faculty for the next 29 years, but again, never given the professorship. He taught philosophy and English language and literature. He was a classicist. Um, the last 10 years of his life, he spent at Cambridge. And Cambridge, he was finally given a chair as a full professorship, a chair in medieval and Renaissance English literature. It's believed that J.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis were the top two classicists when it comes to uh, medieval and Renaissance literature in the 20th century. But at both schools, his lectures were like magnetic he had so many people coming to his classes, there was standing room only. The lecture halls he filled. He's still an atheist. But while he was there teaching at, at Oxford the first time as an atheist, he found himself surrounded by Christians in two ways. All of his friends and all of his books. The authors to all the books that he loved he started going, how come all of these guys are, are Christians? In fact, let me, let me read for you this quote here up on the, on, on the screen. You can follow along with me. He writes this, in reading Chesterton, as in reading MacDonald, I did not know what I was letting myself in for. A young man who wishes to remain a sound atheist cannot be too careful in his reading. There are traps everywhere. Bibles laid open, millions of surprises. As Herbert says, fine nets and stratagems. God is, if I may say it, very unscrupulous. <laughs> I love that. Isn't that fantastic? <clears throat> An atheist cannot be too careful. He's speaking of the God who we love, the hound of heaven, 
hounding us down, seeking us, laying traps all over, traps for what? That we might find the love of God. And that's what Lewis constantly points to. Lewis never points to himself. He's a self, very self-deprecating person. He's constantly pointing away from himself to the love of God because he was so moved by the love of God in his own life. And friends who talked, to, um, talked with him, uh, Tolkien, J.R. Tolkien, the author of The Lord of the Rings, another friend, uh, in, he was Catholic, another friend, Owen Barfield, who was a recent convert to following Jesus, they would have these conversations all the time. In fact, it, behind Oxford, so at Oxford, there's one of the colleges called Maudlin College. It's spelled like Magdalene, but the English say Maudlin. I have no idea why. It doesn't make any sense to me. But at Maudlin College, behind it, there's a walkway. It's beautiful, and it's called Addison's Walk. And he and Tolkien would go walking on these, this little dirt pathway by this river behind Maudlin College, and they would talk about things, talk about ideas, Tolkien was a passionate follower of Jesus, and he would oftentimes say to him, I don't understand, you're so attracted to the pagan stories of a, of a dying and rising God. You're so attracted to the pagan myths about a God who sacrifices for the good of these people. You love those stories. Why don't you like it when it actually happened in time, space, history? Lewis, that was like a pebble in his shoe. He couldn't get it out of his shoe. Everywhere he walked, that was the pebble. Why, why, why am I so repelled against the myth made fact, as he called it? The story, the fairy tale come true. And he was fascinated by that idea as he continued in these conversations. In fact, in, in his book, Surprised by Joy, he writes this. You must picture me. Now, this is, the pebble's been in his shoe a long time. It's wearing him down, okay? You must picture me alone in that room in Maudlin, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in, admitted that God was God, knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night, listen to this phrase, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. And then listen, he reflects later, he goes, I did not then see what is now the most shining and obvious thing, the divine humility which will accept a convert even on such terms. The prodigal son at least walked home on his own feet, but who can duly adore the love which will open the high gates to a prodigal who was brought in kicking, struggling, resentful, darting his eyes in every direction for a chance to escape? The words compelle and trare, compel them to come in, have been so abused by wicked men that we shudder at them, but properly understood, they plumb the depth of the divine mercy. The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men, and his compulsion is our liberation. He became a theist first. He still didn't buy the Jesus thing, but he thought, I think there's a God and he said, but I don't think I could know God any more than Hamlet could know Shakespeare. 
And so, yes, there's a God, but I couldn't have a personal relationship with him. It was later in his life that he said, you know what, that, that analogy was actually pretty good. Hamlet couldn't know Shakespeare, but you know what could happen? Shakespeare could write himself as a character into the play and introduce himself to Hamlet. And he goes, that's what I think happened at the incarnation. That's what took, I think I can know God through the person of Jesus. So he became a theist, 1929. Two years later, he, think, he said, Jesus is, he's the full revelation of God. I submit my life to the person. I, I don't just worship this nebulous concept. I worship the person of Jesus. He is the son of the father and the fullest revelation of him. And he honed his apologetical skills going forward. He was a president of the Oxford Socratic Club. That would have been cool to be there for that. I'd pay to be a fly on the wall. Oxford Socratic Club is you'd have a Christian come up and you'd have a, an atheist come up and they would give lectures, papers. And then Lewis would come up at the end of, at, and, and he would tear to shred the atheist. <laughs> and um, his, his skills were honed then. They were also honed when he joined a group called the Inklings. He and Tolkien started this group where they would share uh, writings that they were working on and, and, and they would meet at a little pub there at Oxford and they would share ideas and Lewis the, was the one who really pushed Tolkien to finish Lord of the Rings because he just said, I don't think I'll ever finish. It's too big, I can't do it. And Lewis said, you've got to do it, it's fantastic. <clears throat> England needs a myth of its past and we need that, so keep going. Again, 29 years, he's at Oxford 54, he's elected chair of, uh, at, at, at Cambridge. About that time, he met a woman. Her name is Joy Davidman. She was an American, somewhat uncouth. Uh, she was a divorcee. That's not too good in the 50s. Um, she had two sons. She had kind of um, flirted with atheism, communism, and it was through some of the writings of C.S. Lewis that she put that aside. And he falls madly in love with this uncouth American woman. And they get married. And this old, old guy who's a bachelor, never married his entire life, is madly in love uh, for the first time. Joy gets cancer, though. Reminds him when he was nine years old. He prays fervently. It goes into remission. He's so pleased. He's so grateful, but it comes back. They travel, they go to Greece, they do all these things, but it comes back. And she dies three years after their marriage. And he wrote a book called A Grief Observed. Years ago, he had written a book called The Problem of Pain. It's a philosophical look at the problem of evil. Now he writes A Grief Observed. It's not a philosophical, it's a cathartic lament. It's not just ideas, it's I'm there. <clears throat> I'm in it, what can I do? And he was devastated. In fact, he first wrote this book, A Grief Observed, and he didn't want his name attached to it because <clears throat> he thought people will think I've lost my faith. I've completely rejected it. Why? Because he's so honest. He's honest with his feelings in this lament. He writes this in A Grief Observed. He says, you know, turn to him, turn to God when things are going great with gratitude and praise and you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. Go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is in vain and what do you find? 
a door slammed in your face, and the sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. Pretty honest. <laughs> he writes this, you might as well just turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. There are no lights in the window. It might be an empty house. Was it ever inhabited? It seemed so once. And that seeming was as strong as this seems. What can this mean? Why is he so present, a commander in our time of prosperity, and so very absent, a help in time of trouble? You ever wondered that? Lewis did, and he was very honest about it. Lewis never pulls punches. Lewis will never give you a cheap answer. He will never give you a cliche if you go to Lewis. Lewis also wrote this a little bit later. He asked the question, how do we know God's good? He said, I think he's there. I think there's a God. I, I don't even question that. He said, if I question that, I could just take a bunch of sleeping pills and it'd all be over. But I know there's a God. So I know it can't just be over. But he said, how do I know he's really good? And then he asked this question in his book. He says, supposing if the truth were that God always vivisects, I didn't know what that word meant. I had to look it up. <clears throat> Vivisect means that you dissect something while it's alive. Maybe that's what God's character is like. Maybe God likes to inflict pain on beings while they're alive just to watch them suffer. You ever wondered, God, are you just, do you even care? Are you unmoved by this pain? Lewis did, and yet he was still a faithful follower of Jesus. Lewis never offers platitudes and weak answers. But Lewis remembered that while this whole world has so much darkness to it, he remembered that the leaves of the New Testament are telling another story. They're rustling with the promise that one day, in the words of Lewis, in a sermon he preached, the door on which we have been knocking all our lives will one day open at last. Remember that door that he was talking about? You feel like you're knocking on all years, bolting and double bolting. The mystery, faith is involved. And we'll say, <clears throat> like, like Lewis's friend, Tolkien, as he wrote, put these words into the character of Samwise Gamgee, when Samwise wakes up after thinking <clears throat> all is lost in the return of the king, and Samwise says this, Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? And Gandalf answers, a great shadow has departed, Gandalf said. And then he laughed, and the sound was like music or like water in a parched land. And as he listened and thought, the thought came to Sam that he had not heard laughter, the pure sound of merriment, for days upon days without count. And if you read Lewis, you will always be reminded of God's promise that's in the Bible. God's promise that one day the door on which we have been knocking all our lives will open at last. Whew, I'm looking for that. 
Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for for giving us your servant, C.S. Lewis. Thank you for what you did in his life. Thank you for your faithfulness to him. God, would you you help us not to look too long at this C.S. Lewis, but help us to look along him toward you to see you better. Father, would you encourage our hearts as we look with this one who is a flawed saint, but as we look at your world again anew, help us to see it anew. God, would you re-enchant us to a world that is ablaze with the glory of God? Help us to take up our callings as ambassadors of King Jesus and the places that you have set us. God, help us to hear you say what is in your hand and that we would be faithful to the gifting that you have put inside us to be your faithful ambassadors, your faithful servants. And would you, God, have your way in our lives. We submit them to you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen and amen. Hey, I want to, uh, <coughs> if I can find... I'm going to read for you in closing a benediction. So would you stand with me? And I want to read this over you. Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 5, verse 5, that we have a hope that does not put us to shame. Another translation says it doesn't disappoint. We have a hope that doesn't disappoint because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And so we have a hope that doesn't disappoint. Amen? Amen. Love you guys. Thank you for being here. I hope to see you this weekend when Jerry Root's here. And I hope to see you next weekend. What nights? Wednesday and Thursday. Awesome. Have a great rest of your week, you guys. Love you.